Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today on the show, we're talking Somalia, where the country is heading full steam into a major political crisis as President Farmajo's mandate ends on February 8th, and there's still no deal on how to hold those elections. I'm joined by Omar Mahmoud, our senior Somalia analyst, to explain it all. Omar, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. So, Omar, last time we talked, it was over the summer, and we discussed how Somalia was heading towards this electoral crisis. That electoral cliff, so to speak, is is now upon us. President Farmajo's mandate is over on February 8th. Parliament's mandate already ended in December. And there's still no agreement between Farmajo and the opposition on holding elections. So, so what's at stake and... And what happens on February 8th? Yeah, well, we're really headed to some uncharted waters uh, from February 8th and beyond, because basically the electoral agreement the parties came to in September has fallen apart in the implementation phase. And so there's no consensus on the path forward. And that's an unprecedented situation for Somalia, because even in the past, when timelines have been fungible and extended, there's always been an agreement and a path and a way forward on that. Uh, but right now, we, we don't see that. And, and that's what gives us uh, quite a bit of concern, a bit of worry, um, especially the risks that that has to the stability of the country and the prospects for violence. Yeah, and just one more question on that before we we head into the in, into the weeds here. I and I'm sure you two hear two different stories on this. On on one side, you have you know strong warnings, like you said, that we're heading into uncharted water, and the basic stability of already a very fragile state is at stake. Um, and warnings of civil war. And then on the other side, you know, you sort of have a narrative that this is this is Somali politics. This is the normal brinkmanship that we see, and that they tend to sort of work this out after exhausting all the all the other options. So, so, you know, where do you sort of fall on this in terms of just how serious uh, this is, even if it is uncharted? Yeah, I, I see both those narratives, but I do think this situation is, is quite serious and, and unprecedented in, in a few ways. Um, you know, I always kind of describe it as, as the cliff is being extended, but is everyone willing to jump off of it? Well, I'm not quite sure. Based on the previous electoral cycles and how we've seen that process come out, this one has been much more contested. There is pervasive distrust uh, between the government and those who are opposing it at this point. I think we've seen the breakdown at, at a number of different phases and worrying signs of, of mobilization between those who, who are opposed to this process. So I, I don't think it's necessarily business as usual this time. We're also getting quite close to this deadline where afterwards is, is kind of almost anyone's guess. And because we're coming so close to this deadline as well, it's a situation where any sort of miscalculation or uh, misstep can also set things off a different path. First of all, let, let's remind our listeners uh, about sort of the major players involved. So we have President Formaggio on one side, and then on the other side, you have sort of a political opposition that, that includes former uh, presidents of Somalia. And then you also have some of Somalia's federal regions, um, especially Puntland and Jubaland, who have found themselves in opposition to Farmarjo. So, so that's more or less the sort of theater at play here, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the opposition, when we describe it, is quite diverse and varied. And basically, they've they've come together around opposition to Farmajo itself. So at a federal member state level, yes, that's particularly the states of Puntland and Jubaland. The other member states are seen as closer to Farmajo. There is a coalition of presidential candidates now that includes the last two presidents and a number of other high-profile figures and high-profile high names uh, that have, have come to a basic understanding about 
some of their grievances towards the process. And so there's a coalition of about 14 of them that are putting together at least a common front for right now. Um, And then also even within parliament, you have the upper house speaker of parliament that's also involved in in a bit of a dispute with uh, the government as well. So I'd say those are probably the three biggest um, centers of opposition. And who is President Formaggio's biggest challenger? Or or is there sort of a united front yet in terms of who would actually be challenging him for the presidency? Well, there's so there's a united front amongst the candidates in terms of how they want to see the process play out. But there's not a united front in terms of saying you know, we all get behind this one particular individual. So there are some high profile names. So the previous two presidents, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud and Sheikh Sharif, you have a few other figures that have been around Somali politics for quite some time. And honestly, there's other candidates that could still emerge. You know, this isn't a set process thus far. And like you said, since we since we last talked over the summer, there was a framework agreement that was reached that resolved some of the outstanding issues um, but but talk us through what are the major remaining obstacles to actually holding this vote. Yeah, so there's three key areas which the opposition is complaining about. And this all relates to a breakdown and implementation of the September 17th agreement, which laid out basically a return to another indirect electoral process for the, for this time around. And, and so these, these issues of concern really relate to implementation, but also control of the process. Um, that, that's really what's at stake here. So out of the three, first one relates to the composition of the electoral commissions at both a state and a federal level. So each state has their own electoral commission, and then there's a a federal one. And the opposition's charged that that Farmaggio and his allies have have stuffed these committees with, you know, former intel agents, civil servants, others who are basically Farmaggio loyalists. And so they want some of those names removed. Uh, the second issue relates to Somaliland's electoral process. Now, of course, Somaliland itself doesn't participate, but there are those who originally hail from Somaliland that have a role in a space within the Somali elections. And so there's a dispute in terms of who has kind of presiding authority over that, whether that's the highest ranking elected or I guess selected member of uh, originally from Somaliland, which would be the upper house speaker of parliament or whether that's, uh, you know, the government themselves and the deputy prime minister within the Somali government also hails from Somaliland. So there's a a dispute over control of that, which is significant because Somaliland has, I think, 46 seats in the lower house of parliament and 11 in the upper house. And so that's a a big block that would wind up voting for president. Third issue is is a bit of a tricky one because it's not just an electoral issue, but that relates to ghetto an area we've worked on and, and talked about a little bit before, where you have this standoff between the Jubilant administration and the federal government. And so right now, the electoral agreement states that the elections will take place in, in two areas per member state, the capital and in one of the other cities. And so that city for Jubaland is Garbahare, the capital of Ghetto. Uh, but right now, the Jubaland administration won't accept the running of that election until the federal government basically loosens its grip around ghetto. And uh, so basically, Madobe, the the president of of Jubaland, just won't accept it until there's discussions, until either the federal government uh, replaces some of its troops there or its administration, you know, until basically he has a stronger hold there. And so that one's a bit tricky because it's not just about some specific names or or electoral implementation, but obviously goes beyond to to the standoff that's been going on for over a year and and questions about federalism and, and, and whatnot. 
Yeah, and for listeners who are interested, we spent a fair amount of time discussing this this ghetto standoff, which also includes a Kenya-Somalia standoff since Kenya backs President Madobe in, in Jubaland. We talked about that in a previous podcast, so listeners can go check it out there. So, I mean, overall, it seems like in some sense, the sort of big issue besides these ones about Somaliland and, and ghetto, which are not minor, but the big overarching issue is, is essentially that the opposition claims that these electoral committees have been stacked. And given that the deadline, or rather the the end of President Formaggio's mandate, is coming up on February 8th, even if they struck a deal on these electoral committees, how long would it take to even implement that so you could even have elections? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key question. The deadlines right now are just untenable. I mean, it's very clear that there's going to be some sort of delay. I mean, February 8th is just a couple of weeks away. We still haven't even initiated the upper house of parliament elections. Following that, you have the lower house of parliament, which are really the the big ones where you have the electoral colleges involved. And so that takes quite a bit of preparation time. Uh, and then they would have to come together to vote for president. Um, so, so I think it's clear that the timeline is no longer tenable. And I don't think that's necessarily a huge issue as long as there's an agreement on, on the way forward. And that's what's lacking. And, and so that's why February 8th becomes a, a bigger deal. But absolutely, um, to, to replace the names on the commissions, you know, if they got together and sat down, it probably wouldn't be that time intensive of a process. Same way, figuring out a way forward on the Somaliland issue, probably not that time intensive as long as there's some political will and everyone's meeting to discuss it. Ghetto obviously is a little more complicated, might take a little bit more time. But it, but if there's the political will and if the actors are getting together, I think they can still organize an election, you know, whether that's delayed by, you know, two to four or five months or so. Um, but I think they can still come to a process where everyone's on board. But really, they just have to get together and hammer out these issues. Yeah, and not to bore our listeners with too many details, but elections in Somalia are not quite like uh, elections elsewhere. Um, so can you just talk us through specifically on the presidential election exactly how that'll work? Because it's not, you know, as you said, a direct vote like people were hoping might occur this time. So, uh, I mean, essentially, you kind of have three mini processes. So one is for the upper house of parliament, one is for the lower house of parliament, and combined parliament, both houses vote for president. But these are indirect elections. And so by that, what it means is, uh, particularly for the lower house of parliament, there are seats which are assigned to particular clans and subclans. And so the elders for those seats pick electoral colleges for each seat. And so in this election, those electoral colleges will be 101 members each. And so there's some guidelines there that they're supposed to be, you know, 30% of the 101 should be women, um, some guidelines around the youth, civil society to, to make sure that even though it's indirect, there's at least some sort of cross uh, sectional representation of, of society, at least for that particular subclan. Um, for the upper house, it's a bit of a different process. Basically, the, the federal member presidents in each area can nominate their members and their assemblies vote on it. So, so it's a much less content, contentious, a, a much um, quicker process. So that, that's basically how you have an indirect selection. If, if you tally up all the people that are scheduled to vote in this, if, if you basically multiply the electoral colleges by the seats, you'll probably have about 28,000 people voting in this election, which is double the last indirect election. You know, and an important point to stress is that President Farmajo, of course, is, is trying to win another term. But in fact, uh, none of his predecessors have been able to do that. Uh, they've always been one term 
presidents. So, and, and, and why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question because for all of uh, Somalia's faults, the thing that they've done really well is hold these regular processes and have a rotational power at the, at the highest uh, leadership level. So it, it is an impressive feat in, in that sense. Um, but as to why no one's been reelected um, thus far, I mean, one, when you break uh, Somalia down by, by the clan system, which is very much embedded in, in the political framework of these uh, elections and in the process there, uh, there's so many diverse interests and actors that get pulled in there. And I think it's just hard being in power to satisfy all of those interests and actors that uh, comes up by the time your election comes up. It's, it's very difficult then to, to win all of the allegiances that you probably won the first time around. The second aspect is, is Somalia is just a very difficult place to to govern and show uh, clear progress, you know, whether that's on, on the governance side, on the security side, trying to get economic recovery going. I think we've seen all of the administrations actually come in with very high expectations and outline a very robust program of what they plan to achieve in their four-year mandate. And then when you come up to the end of those four years and you start measuring back, you see a lot of gaps. And, and so those expectations that I think are always raised then also kind of come back to bite you come election time. And I imagine that, you know, the lack of any of these presidents holding on to power is one of the things that sort of holds at bay uh, more of the clan politics over who rules Somalia. Yeah, I mean, rotation of, of power and particularly at, at a clan level is quite useful. I mean, there is a, a clan formula embedded within Somali politics in which the four biggest clans have an equal share and minority clans have half a share. Um, and that's something that if you move to a direct election process, we would no longer really be sort of the, the basic formula in play. Uh, but basically, yes, having this rotation of power does at least ensure that uh, some some different clans and been able to, to shift, at least from the major clan families. I mean, if you look at subclans, you know, some of the main presidential candidates are all from uh, one particular Hawaii subclan. So you still see that dominance of, of particular elements that are, that are politically more powerful, but it does at least help ensure there is some rotation. Now, we've made it pretty far in this discussion thus far without mentioning a really major element, which is the sort of outside support that President Formaggio does have um, outside the country. And and I think that, that many people think plays a major role in this. You have support from, from Doha and, and Qatar. Turkey is seen as, as a supporter. And then within the region, you have Prime Minister Abi of Ethiopia and President Isaias in Eritrea. Uh, do you think these outside support both regionally and outside the region you know is that the major new ingredient or wild card here as compared to uh, previous uh, elections outside actors and external sort of uh, interests in Somali elections particularly because they are indirect elections and you can influence a small amount of people to get a wider result uh, have been hallmarks of the previous elections as well what's been interesting under Farmajo's tenure is how he staked out his foreign policy uh, which is a bit different from his predecessors. And and so particularly after the GCC crisis broke out, he very much doubled down on his relationship with Qatar. Um, and, and, you know, people see Turkey as an outgrowth of that as well. And then regionally, what he's been able to do, and particularly within this context of this emerging tripartite framework, which puts uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia on a little bit of a partnership there. And, and so those relationships uh, are very different, especially his relationship particularly with Ethiopia and Eritrea, which wasn't really a player in the last round of elections either. Um, so he's been able to stake out these relationships. And, and I do think that helps
helps him when the pressure is so high on him internally. Uh, I, I do think these external relationships provide a bit of a, a buffer and a bit of a boon for him. And, and so I, I think we have to be watching that quite closely, how that plays out in, in this election. External actors always have that involvement. Um, but but in this one, having such the, the close relationships with Fromage in particular, rather than wider in, in the country, can have some implications. And do you think as we head towards different scenarios, if we do have a major political dispute, do you think he can command more than just political support? But do you think he might be able to command actual security uh, support if violence was something that, that played out? I mean, I think when we're heading to, you know, what could happen post February 8th in the absence of any sort of consensus agreement. You know, not to say that there's not still time for that, but in the absence of that, where we are currently right now, uh, we do see some worrying signs what would happen in terms of uh, the introduction or reintroduction of, of political violence to the scene. I, I think there's serious concerns about the cohesiveness of the Somali National Army, Somali security sector. Um, that's always kind of been uh, an issue, basically, whether whether there's a really cohesive unit there. Uh, but I think we've already seen some signs of clan-based units um, demonstrating their autonomy, show of force, uh, some of these on the outskirts of Mogadishu. Uh, and so it really calls down to the breakdown of, of the security sector if, if we go down this path. And in that scenario, you know, it's, it's kind of curious to see what Farmaggio would rely on. You know, he does have some external support. Ethiopian security has been involved in some of these regional elections. There's this very opaque um, developments around Somali security forces training in Eritrea and a lot of concerns from the opposition that some of these might return. And then, of course, if things get quite difficult, there there are uh, other external security actors in, in Somalia that would work to at least stabilize the situation. Um, so you do have the Amasom units still in, in, in Somalia. You know, Farmaj has complained at least about the Kenyan contingent of that. So it's kind of curious what he might rely on. I, I think we can paint a lot of different scenarios, uh, but none of them seem um, you know very useful for Somalia's stability going forward. Okay, so... Let's go ahead and, and, and look at some of the scenarios. And of course, um, you know, violence is, is, is not at all inevitable here, but we are facing a situation where in February 8th, it could still be contested about whether or not uh, President Farmarjo is still a legitimate president. I mean, and you talked through some of this, but are we basically looking at a scenario in which clans, you know, specifically the Hawiye clan, for instance, and, and Mogadishu sort of take up arms to try to uh, push him out of power? Is that is that sort of where the biggest worry lies? You know, some Hawiye clan elders and uh, security forces have been quite vociferous in their opposition to Farmaggio, and everyone's pointing to the end of his mandate. So there's kind of a big question, what happens February 9th then? Um, so, so I think that is one concern around Mogadishu in particular. Since, um, you know, a lot of this, uh, the biggest support for some of the Hawaii subclans, a lot of them are based around Mogadishu. Um, so, so that is a concern as well. Um, I think another area flashpoint we'd have to look at is, is ghetto as well. Um, you know, that's been quite securitized over the past year where you have opposing forces and security deployments um, not too far away from each other. Um, and you've already had clashes there over, over the past, uh, you know, back earlier in 2020. When you get locally in, in some of the other member states, there's levels of discontent that haven't been addressed that become infused in the national political process as well. So particularly in Hirshabele 
in, in, in uh, Belidwane, which is the capital of the Heran uh, state of Hershebele. There's clan elders and, and uh, sort of a wider clan um, element that's upset with a regional election that happened there just before, towards the end of uh, 2020, just before these the federal process kind of took root. Um, and, and so they're kind of upset about how that played out and that they lost the the presidency of, of that regional state as well. And, and so that adds another layer of, of contention to an already combustible situation. Um, so you have a few different areas, you know, where, where you could look to that we might be concerned on, on February 9th about what really the trajectory, where, where it goes. And then beyond that, uh, we, we've made it this far in the conversation without mentioning Al-Shabaab. Um, and, and you uh, and Crisis Group have recently you know, published uh, an entire briefing just looking at this question of, of al-Shabaab and the Islamic State um, in relation to the elections. What are the major risks there? Obviously, any political instability would, would seem to play into al-Shabaab's hands. Yeah, I mean, basically, al-Shabaab's been, been very clear that they view participation in the government and these elections as apostate activities, and they're willing and prepared to target people who do that. And so I think, you know, a really worrying element of this is is individual retribution. So after the 2016-17 electoral process, uh, al-Shabaab basically launched this campaign where they were assassinating elders and other uh, delegates who participated in that, um, you know, throughout much of 2017. I mean, almost every week there was there was a handful of uh, people killed. And it wasn't just in Mogadishu, it was in some of the outlying areas as well. Now, um, you know, Amisom with along with the uh, Somali uh, security sector are, are working very hard to prepare these voting sites. But an additional vulnerability is this expansion of the of the voting sites. So as, as I mentioned earlier, now there's going to be two locations per federal member state. So it's not just about securing the capital. It's also about securing an outlying area. So so that adds a, a vulnerability this time that wasn't there in, in the last election in the, in the same way. We also saw in something we documented in, in the briefing how al-Shabaab was able to influence participants to not participate in in the process. So one thing they did, yes, they had the stick, which was this assassination campaign. Well, they also had a bit of a carrot and said, if you repent, if you you know, agree not to participate in the elections going forward, we'll, we'll forgive you and we won't target you. And we were able to interview a few people who went through that process and, and their stories were quite clear that al-Shabaab said, you know, in 2020, 2021, we do not expect you to participate. And if you do, we can't grant forgiveness this time around based on ignorance or based on whatever uh, elements they were able to grant forgiveness in the last round. Um, and, and so that also has, you know, an overhanging. It's a, a wider question. Of course, everyone knows that participation draws the wrath of al-Shabaab, but does that have an impact in terms of how, how people approach this as well? Um, but I think that the main point I'd stress is the risk goes beyond just uh, voting day itself. And is there also a risk that we could see uh, certain clans, for instance, uh, ally with al-Shabaab? So I think anytime you have a breakdown of the political order and significant contestation and and uh, political you know marginalization, you see Al Shabaab being quite good at inserting themselves into that dynamic, and you see you know certain um, we've seen this from minority clans or other smaller clans. Um, ally themselves with al-Shabaab as a vehicle to basically get what they want or at least pursue um, what they want against against more powerful actors. So I think that's that's a very strong warning about if the political process does break down uh, post-February 
eighth, um, you you have an actor in Al Shabab that's very primed to take advantage of this to exploit these divisions. That's done it in the past. I, I don't think we're there just yet again. Uh, but the further that political contestation goes on, the more it opens up opportunities for a group like Al Shabab. So I think we've done a pretty comprehensive look at you know the the overall context here and the and the major concerns. Um, as we mentioned, you know this level of brinkmanship itself in Somali politics is not necessarily new. So I'm just wondering. You know, we, we've talked about the really, you know, bad scenarios. Chart us a sort of theoretical path forward um, where, where this gets resolved um, and what that looks like. The best way we could see this get resolved is that the government, and particularly Farmajo, sit down with the opposition, so the the member states that are opposing him, but also the political opposition, and they hammer out an agreement over these three outstanding issues. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, two of them I don't think are that complicated in terms of the, the uh, staffing of the commissions and in terms of Somaliland's process. I think there's compromises out there and there's a way forward. They just really need to get to the table. Ghetto is a little more complicated and would require some some creativity, but I, I still think there's a, there's a path forward there. Um, and, and so an ideal situation, those three dynamics would get resolved before February 8th. We'd have a, a new timeline, but that would be a consensus timeline on how this process is going to continue. Now, to get there, though, I think we have to look back at how we got to the September 17th agreement. And there was three really critical factors, I think, pointing to that. One, the internal pressure was quite high on Farmaggio, whether that was coming from opposing member states, uh, opposing clans and whatnot. Uh, Two, that was matched by a high degree of external pressure. So uh, from Somalia's partners, you know, particularly um, some of the Western partners in, in this regard on trying to get to a deal. And three, Farmajo himself w- was involved. You know, he did travel to Dusamareb and in the, some of the meetings that happened in Mogadishu after he was physically present. And so right now, I think only one of those three is still there. That That's the level of internal pressure. Um, externally, I think the actors have taken a bit more of a hands-off approach, hoping that uh, Somali actors would be able to resolve this on their own. Um, I think we're just getting to a very urgent phase where where maybe a bit more hands-on needs needs to be taken to nudge them in, in the right direction. Um, and three, you know, the mediation efforts that have been going on recently, Farmajo hasn't really been directly involved. He's had his surrogates. He's had, you know, those who, who either represent him in, in the government or allied to him as member states really undertaking some of that outreach. And that just hasn't been as effective. So so I think getting him more personally involved um, and, and, and physically present at some of the meetings would help as well. So that that's really, I think, the ideal situation, that basically you have a continuation of the September 17th agreement. It's just that you've had uh, those issues hammered out and a consensus way on an extension of that. There's, you know, a few other options that that people are kind of throwing out there. You know, one is uh, after February 8th, you have a caretaker administration, uh, which would basically pave the way for... Um, you know, uh, basically pave the way for elections, but it wouldn't be Farmajo himself. Um, you know, I, I think that's something people are, are throwing out there to basically overcome this trust deficit between the Farmajo administration and the opposition. Um, but at the same time, that would add another layer of complication because you'd have to agree on a caretaker agreement and we haven't even been able to agree on on the electoral committee members. Um, and there'd be a lot of jostling back and forth on, on that. So that is an option. Um, but but I think it's, it's a little more complex one that maybe we're not quite there just yet. 
Um, another interesting one I was hearing recently is about having uh, Parliament extend its mandate and just vote for the leadership of um, basically the leadership of Parliament and, and the presidency itself. So you kind of remove some of the contestation around Parliament and the long setup time it takes to get, get Parliament up and running as well. Um, again, there's a lot of creative options out there. I mean, that uh, still sets Somalia on a different path. It kind of interrupts the flow of where you've had regular rotations of power from Parliament and the presidency. Uh, at, at the same time. So, so you know, we need to think long and hard about some of those. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of creative thinking going on from so Somali civil society and whatnot. But I'd say the best path forward is still trying to preserve as much of September 17th as you can prior to February 8th. And I'm listening to you and thinking that, you know, the Biden administration, I'm sure, wishes <laughs> that they had a, a bit more time to get settled before this kind of lands on their plate as well. Omar, thanks. Thanks very much uh, for your time. And I think that about wraps it up for us. No, happy to be here, Alan, and uh, appreciate uh, taking the time to focus on this key issue as well. Thanks for listening. If you want to read our reports or learn more about Crisis Group, visit our website at crisisgroup.org and follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and our producer is Mae Francis. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.